Welcome to Language and Justice, a podcast about the intersection of, you guessed it, language and justice. Episode 3, Hippocratic Hypocrisy. What's more unjust than a doctor whose job it is to keep people alive, taking away another person's life? How about when the reason for the injustice is a difference in language, a difference in culture, a difference in communication style, or any of the other differences we've talked about so far on language injustice? When most doctors' main priority is to do no harm, according to the famous Hippocratic Oath, how can such a crime be justified? In the fall of 2020, Montreal residents and Canadians from coast to coast took to the streets to protest the unjust treatment of a Tikamek indigenous woman, Joyce Eshaquan, that led to her death in a Quebec hospital. The cause of her death was in many ways an intercultural communication failure. Joyce's story is just one example of something that is unfortunately more common than you'd think. We've talked a lot about how differences in culture, broadly conceived, can cause all kinds of misunderstandings and miscommunications. We've also talked about how these misunderstandings and miscommunications can lead to serious consequences. In this episode of Language Injustice, we'll be talking about linguistic injustice in the healthcare industry, particularly in regard to intercultural communication and how failures in communication in the hospital or doctor's office can be extremely dangerous, sometimes ending in death. Stay tuned to hear about multiple examples of Hippocratic hypocrisy, including a specific case, Joyce's, that spawned a movement just this past fall. Now before we get into it, let's revisit some important concepts that have already come up before on language injustice. We've talked about how culture is hard to define, and how intercultural encounters or interactions can really encompass a wide range of things and include any number of factors. Since any kind of difference can lead to a communication difficulty, it's good to be extra aware of our intentions and expectations going into any interaction to make sure that we're doing our best to understand what's going on and what the people we're talking to think is going on too. We've talked about ideas like communicative relativity, the fact that people use different languages for different purposes. This is especially the case with multilingual people. You might use one language at home and a different language at work and school. Or maybe you speak one language with a certain friend and a different language with another. We've also talked about a few different kinds of linguistic discrimination. One kind was the way real estate agents tend to call back people with white-sounding accents more than non-white-sounding ones. This kind of discrimination is referred to as linguistic profiling. And the many court cases we heard about in which people were denied fair treatment in the legal process because of their use of language would certainly amount to linguistic discrimination as well. One thing we've repeatedly come back to is the idea of judgment. People judge others based on their use of language. That's pretty much the root of all of this. When we talked about Rachel Jontel in the last episode, we heard about how often people in the press and on social media, as well as in the courtroom itself, had judged Jontel harshly for her use of language. 
And this judgment was mainly because she was using a dialect that has a bad reputation, even though her use of that dialect was perfectly correct. At this point, I'd like to bring up a quote from ancient Rome, which I guess shows that these kinds of issues have existed for a long, long time. Marcus Tullius Cicero, a powerful politician of his time, is quoted as saying that we are completely deaf to the innumerable languages which we don't understand. And really, that hits the nail on the head. Assuming Cicero was talking about actual distinct languages, we can now extend what he said to include subtler differences in communication styles. We can include all of the kinds of quote-unquote cultural differences that lead to communication issues. Those communication issues following Cicero's quote come from the fact that we are deaf to people who talk differently. We don't even notice them at all. Why is it so hard for us to listen to people who are different from us? Surely you've been in a public place before and witnessed a conversation taking place in a language you didn't understand. And surely, like most of us, you tuned them out as quickly as you noticed them in the first place. It's likely that you didn't stand around listening intently and trying to decode this unknown language, unless you're some kind of, I don't know, linguist. The point is, we usually pay better attention to people when we can easily follow what they're saying. And no, we can't be blamed for that, at least not just for that alone. It makes a lot of sense. But when we don't even make an effort to understand people because the differences feel too hard to overcome, then we're on to something else. So how does all of this pertain to healthcare? Let's talk about it. Numerous examples can be brought up that address how intercultural communication failure in hospitals and medical offices have led to serious problems. To demonstrate some of these examples, I'll be drawing once again from Australian applied linguist Ingrid Piller. In one case, a 75-year-old woman died in her home after receiving extremely negligent care from her home nurses, who had allowed her dentures to become moldy and her wounds to become infected due to fecal contamination. Although her family members made it clear that she would not have understood instructions in English due to her basic level of the language, the woman had been treated by nurses who apparently just did not listen. The nurses had defended their treatment by calling the woman stubborn and quiet. When I hear about this case, my reaction is to ask how come the nurses, who clearly were not able to communicate with their patient, did not report back to the medical facility and demand that their patient be paired with nurses who spoke her own language, so that they could give her the best possible care. Instead, they carried on neglecting to give proper care because the woman didn't understand when they gave instructions. It's not because she wasn't listening, but because she simply did not understand. In another case, a 27-year-old South Sudan immigrant with a basic level of English died in Australia's immigration detention. The man's name was Faisal Ishak Ahmad, and over a period of several months, he had made multiple attempts to visit the detention's medical provider due to experiencing various physical pains and symptoms, from upset stomach and fever to high blood pressure and heart problems. Every time he went, a nurse would tell him that he was not sick, that he was pretending to be sick, and that he needed to stop coming back. These dismissals meant that Faisal, who clearly presented with some kind of ailment, had never actually gotten to see a doctor. In his last words before his death, Faisal is quoted as saying, They're trying to kill me. He died after collapsing from a seizure. These examples are part of a wider problem, as Pillar explains. A 2016 study by a group of medical researchers looked into how patients with limited English proficiency are treated by healthcare workers in the United States. Gathering the experiences of a group of medical students and nursing students, the researchers found that students felt that the current system and learning environment did not support or emphasize high-quality care 
for patients with limited English proficiency. In other words, the notion that non-English speakers receive a poor level of medical care is not just an opinion. It's a fact, built into the United States medical system and actively passed down to its next generation. The kinds of problems the researchers report include lack of informed consent for surgeries, insufficient explanation of a diagnosis, treatment, follow-up plan, or medication, and the suffering of dangerous side effects. We'll come back to some of these issues when we get to the Joyce Eshaquan story. But above all, they found that many hospitals were organized in such a way that the number one priority was efficiency, which meant that providers rarely were able to devote enough time or energy to a patient who needed extra help understanding their diagnosis or their follow-up instructions, for instance. The junior doctors interviewed for the study described having less empathy for patients with limited English proficiency and not wanting to devote extra resources and brain power to their care. One even talked about a supervisor who had claimed that Haitian people have a different perception of pain than other people and that this was used as a reason to brush it off when Haitians complained of painful symptoms. It's pretty horrific to know that there are some medical professionals who think this way, but what's so frightening about the 2016 study is that it shows that this is systemic. This is the kind of problem that, even if there are excellent medical providers here and there and everywhere who do take the concerns of their patients seriously, native English speaker or not, The fact that it's built into the system means that those who don't feel like treating those patients well are probably not going to face much punishment for it. That is, unless the case receives enough media attention. And sometimes that's exactly what it takes. The situation we'll talk about in a few minutes involved an Atikamekw indigenous woman in Canada. But it is an example of a larger problem of the mistreatment of indigenous people across North America and beyond. The healthcare system is certainly not the only setting where this takes place, from police violence to wrongful legal treatment to inadequate education and more. But since we're talking about healthcare, let's talk about healthcare. One of the overarching problems is that indigenous peoples tend to have difficulty accessing the medical care that they need. Even basic health services are often located too far away for indigenous people to get to them easily. And even when they can access these services, they often experience discriminatory treatment, especially when the language they speak is not the one used in the healthcare setting, which shouldn't come as much of a surprise based on what we just learned. This may explain why so many indigenous people live with chronic conditions, like how in Australia, indigenous people live with cardiovascular disease at a rate that is 1.5 times that of non-indigenous people. In the United States, indigenous people have a life expectancy 5.5 years lower than the rest of the population and die from several conditions at rates higher than non-indigenous people, including diabetes, liver disease, and lower respiratory illnesses. Indigenous people also have the highest rates of alcohol dependence out of any other group in the U.S., perhaps due to actual patterns and perhaps due to a problem of overdiagnosis. The COVID-19 pandemic has illustrated the point as well with rates of death from the disease consistently higher for people of color than white populations. Infant mortality is another good example. Infant mortality is another term for the number of children who die before their first birthdays. Data from 2013 show that while infant mortality rates for white and Latinx populations were comparable at roughly 5 in 1,000, the rate for indigenous people was 8 in 1,000, and even higher for black people, 11 in 1,000. 
Perhaps it seems like we're getting off topic, since none of the statistics mentioned say anything about language per se. But let's not forget what we already know. The people who speak differently, meaning a different language, a different dialect, or even just different communication styles, tend to be treated differently. And any of these health disparities could very well be linked to differences in treatment based on precisely those factors. A good example is Brian Sinclair, a 45-year-old Ojibwa man who, in 2008, died from a bladder infection that could have easily been treated if he had been seen by a doctor in time. He entered the Winnipeg emergency room in a wheelchair. The man had already lost both his legs to frostbite a year prior, and he was in need of a new catheter. Unfortunately, although Sinclair showed visible signs of illness and vomited multiple times, the staff assumed that he was either homeless, intoxicated, or both, and that he needed to just sleep it off. He was left to wait for 34 hours without treatment before he died with a doctor's referral note in his pocket. We'll now talk more about the case that was mentioned at the beginning of this episode, the case of Joyce Eshaquan, whose death ignited a national Canadian movement this year, with thousands of people shouting justice for Joyce into the streets of cities across the country. Joyce Eshaquan was a 37-year-old Indigenous woman with a pacemaker who entered a hospital for stomach pains on September 26, 2020. The pacemaker is an important detail, as it reminds us that Eshaquan clearly had some prior health issues that might complicate any treatment she received. Anyone who's ever entered a doctor's office for the first time knows that we're required to recount our medical history often multiple times to make sure that the doctors don't do anything that might cause us harm. But maybe not all medical providers take the same precautions. Or maybe not for all patients. Two days after being admitted to a hospital in Joliet, 45 miles north of Montreal, Joyce recorded a live video of herself, which she shared on Facebook. In the video, Joyce is screaming in pain, crying out to the hospital staff that she has been given too much morphine, to which she was allergic. All of Joyce's speech is in her native Atikamek language, which means no one around could understand her words, but her sentiment is clear in any language, and the fact that they gave her morphine without even knowing if she would have a reaction to it recalls the earlier examples we talked about, such as the woman whose home care nurses had neglected to give her proper treatment just because they didn't speak the same language as her and couldn't figure out a way to have her understand them. One must wonder whether these people even know about language interpreters in the first place. The video continues with Joyce begging for help, and now the hospital staff proceed to not only minimize her pain, but actually make fun of her from a distance criticizing her life choices and asking what her seven children would think if they saw her. The critiques go even further, some calling her stupid as hell and asking if she was done acting stupid yet. They even remark that she's good at having sex more than anything else. These absolutely atrocious comments were made in French, which means the hospital workers probably thought they were in the clear since Joyce wouldn't understand them. But let's be real for a second here. Even if the hospital workers were frustrated and fed up and wanted to say some mean comments behind their patient's back, the least they could have done was actually try to help the person who was screaming out in pain. And that they did not do. The hospital staff's awful remarks were captured in the background of Joyce's live-streamed video and documented for the world to see, 
which helped them garner a ton of media attention and stimulate public outrage. The protests were spurred, the hashtags began to appear, and a movement was born. But video recorded events like these make one wonder just how many similar situations were not caught on video. Two hospital employees involved in the incident were dismissed from their positions a few days after the video went viral. But what if it hadn't? Already there's been discussion about whether or not this kind of treatment was something Joyce had experienced before. In fact, according to a woman who had been witness to a prior hospitalization in August, Joyce's treatment by the staff had been similar then. Despite Joyce screaming and clearly audibly suffering, attendants had responded with either verbal aggression or indifference. When the woman who was visiting her father in the hospital asked staff if she could do anything to help this patient, who was evidently in pain, the staff told her to mind her own business. Many Indigenous Canadians spoke out after Joyce's story went public, sharing that they or their loved ones had gone through similar experiences of anti-Indigenous discrimination in the healthcare system. Joyce had lived with medical problems for a while, and the fact that she was willing to travel three hours from her home in Manawan to the hospital in Joliet suggests that she was probably pretty seriously suffering, and especially if she had had bad experiences with medical professionals before, which seems to be the case. That's actually why she had been filming her experience on the night of her death. Joyce had explained her previous experiences to her family members, and she was in the habit of having a cousin act as an interpreter via video calls. Her cousin could translate the French used in the hospital and make sure Joyce was getting adequate treatment. Only this time, it was too late. Legal action has not yet taken place for Joyce's family to seek justice, although hearings are due to start later this year, along with a full investigation into her death. But the case is devastating in many ways, and the linguistic injustice is just one piece of this awful puzzle. These stories may be gruesome, but the point of the episode is not to make you lose all trust in the medical system, just as the point of the last episode was not to make you lose your faith in the legal system. However, we all need to recognize that these systems are not built perfectly, and their flaws have been documented countless times. Patients with limited English proficiency in English-speaking contexts tend to receive worse care than native or fluent English speakers. And if Joyce's story tells us anything, it's that the same is true in French-speaking contexts for patients with limited French proficiency, and one could imagine it's pretty similar in other places too. Whenever there is a dominant language and a patient does not speak it, or doesn't speak it to an adequate level, there is a risk of precisely this kind of linguistic and cultural discrimination. We need to stay vigilant and keep an eye on all aspects of injustice. Linguistic injustice is just one kind. But it's a kind that most people ignore, hence the importance of sharing this information as much as possible. When it comes down to the heart of the problem, we already know what it is. Remember what Cicero said, we are completely deaf to the innumerable languages which we don't understand. One thing we can try to do is prove Cicero wrong, show the world that we can listen to people who speak differently than us. And it's not an overly simplistic answer. If you have trouble understanding, that's totally fine you can always try harder. And if you really can't get it, then ask for clarification or ask for someone else's help in interpreting. If you don't, you're probably just walking away from the chance to communicate with this person. In some situations, that means missing out on some kind of wonderful, mutually beneficial exchange of information. 
but in others, it means neglecting to give someone the care that they need. If you're a doctor, this is especially important and true. But even if you're not, why would you want to leave someone alone, in need, when they're clearly suffering? My hope is that you come away from hearing these stories feeling anger. Indeed, they are infuriating. But also feeling compelled to do something with that anger. And to keep in mind what we have already said time and time again. Knowing that every single interaction will always be subject to misunderstanding, we must do our best to understand one another. The least we can do is try. Until next time, this has been Language and Justice. Language and Justice is created, written, and produced by Anya McElinden. For more information, you can visit language-n-justice.com or find us on social media at langjusticepod. Questions, comments, and concerns are welcome. Language and Justice can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever else podcasts are found. Remember, language is a social justice issue, so let's talk about it.